talking and I'm not and I'm just <laughs> And then I'm talking <laughs> No, but wait, wait, I have something for him. Boom, you get shot down. Now you're just fucking me, aren't you? <laughs> I'm just wondering why all these people like kids. The Weird History and Eerie Tales Podcast. Concentrate on the news. It's what we do. Wow. <laughs> FYI, there's nothing wrong. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of the Weird History Eerie Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Moses Sorian. With me, as always, is my brother, Josh. Yo, how's it going? And we are sorry. It's been a while. Again. <laughs> it's been a while. There's been, it's been, you know, it's been a tough couple of weeks for everyone. You know, there's been... You know, protests, there's been everything. And that's one of the reasons why I didn't want to upload this episode the past two weeks because I figured there was more important voices to be heard and I didn't want to drown out or take anything away from what was going on. And we had, you know, personal issues here over at our house with, you know, family members passing away and things. But um, now we're back and we're back with part two of our Cannibal Island, which is our fucking finales for this fucking series. It was it, it, it was almost three three or three part series. I'm like, nah, you know what? Let's just give them two hour episodes. Like, just fuck two beefy ass episodes, which I'm excited to finish today, dude. And one of the uh, one of the things that I forgot to do last week is give you guys our source for our source material for this topic, which is the Cannibal Island Death in the Siberian Gulag book by Nicholas Worth. This book is not it's like 160 pages. It's a amazing read. So if you guys enjoyed the show, if you guys are enjoying this episode. Buy this book, and I'll put this book uh, like always, oh, like the rest of our other books, on our episode show notes. Or if you want a brief version of the book, you can check out a movie called or oh, documentary known as Cannibal Island. You can find it on Prime Video. Uh, director Cedric Condom. Uh, it's it's a fifty four minute um, documentary that goes briefly about this. Uh, yeah, it covers cases. It, it covers the you know it covers cannibal. It covers it covers it covers the whole Latino affair, but not as Obviously, nowhere near as in-depth as Nicholas Worth did in Cannibal Island. So, last week, I mean, the last episode, I had um, a little glossary for you guys. Just so you get to know what I'm talking about when I mention these words. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The Gulag. When I mention the Gulag, I'm referencing the main agency for these camps. The Gulag managed both the labor camps and special villages. These The Gulags were in charge of the special villages and the labor camps. And then we have the Commandaturas, which is the agency under the gulag responsible for managing the people being deported and then we have the ogpu which is the overall state political administration which is basically the whole entire government in charge of the whole grandiose plan right so whenever i mentioned the gulag remember it's the agency in charge of the camps when i mentioned the commandatura it's the agency in charge of the people being deported and when i mentioned the ogpu it's the whole shebang getting that out of the way Let's remember, the last time we left off with the OGPU letting the Siberian officials get ready to start receiving the first exiled deportees. And we learned they were nowhere near ready. They were At not all. prepared. So let's continue with Cannibal Island Part 2, Natsino Island. So according to the OGPU, all deportees that were being sent to Western Siberia and part of this grandiose plans were supposed to pass three breakpoints called transit camps these camps were to be located off the rail convoys main debarkation points on the outside of the three cities hosting these transit camps with Tomsk being the last one and the one we will focus on so basically these t transit camps is when people get deported they get shipped off to the 
to um, the Western Siberia. And this is where the and this is the last stop before you reach your final destination to see where you are gonna get settled at. And right now we're just gonna focus on one, which is one of the biggest ones, which was the Tom's camp. And keep in mind these deportees, the first several hundred were actual like criminals, petty crimes, and then after that, it was just hey, if you got your if you forgot your passport, you ain't sent to a gulag. If you looked if you if you're crossing through here Without a passport, you get shipped to the gulag. If you look suspicious, gulag, and it was all because of a quota. They needed to meet a quota, man. They they needed to meet a quota. So these transit camps they had been opened in 1930 and 1931, but since the autumn of 1931, one year after they were opened, all three camps had not been in use. They were constructed to resemble recycled huts instead of official buildings, and they had fallen into ruins. Hmm. So these camps were decrepit ruins three years after just being built. And on March 19th, 1933, the head of the tombs camp, Georgi Kuznevov, he stated that the whole camp was now just a single rundown hut, and all the other huts were unsuitable for lodging anyone. Oh, boy. So on March 20th, the OGPU's representative for Western Siberia he visited the camp and he ordered that within six weeks, 8,000 huts had to be built with an additional 7,000 tents to be set up as well. They were given 172,000 rubles to complete the job. And according to the calculations, this was going to be more than enough to cover the deportees passing through. Because if you don't remember, the plan was for 350,000 people to pass through this camp in three months. With 4,000 deportees leaving and arriving every day to the final settlement. Remember, they had this grand plan. 3,000 people are going to get shipped in, and another 3,000 or 4,000 are going to get shipped out. As soon as they come in, another group goes out. One comes in, one comes out. So it's supposed to be like easy come, easy go, in and out, in and out, in Mm -hmm. and out, in and out. And in a telegram dated April 7th, sent from the chief of the OGPU, this is what it said. And he said, given the size of the groups to be dealt with, all the operations must be perfectly coordinated in order to avoid bottlenecks. So they knew, all right, if if something goes wrong, we're going to bottleneck you, which means you're just going to create mass chaos. It's going to slow everything down, which was an impossible task to do, to complete for two reasons. One being the breaking up of the ice, the breaking up of the ice on the river is going to start to the end of April, which meant, that the completion date of May 1st was an impossible target. And two, once they started, they had seven days to complete the task as, as the deportees would start arriving May 8th. And if that wasn't bad enough, up to this point, Moscow hadn't given any precise date or plans telling anybody when and how many deportees each transit camp would receive which prevented anybody from giving the river fleets exactly how much or how many settlers they would be moving and to where. So everyone in Western Siberia had no had no idea what was going on, how many people were going to come in, how many boats they needed. They, had, they were just like, all right, what the hell do we do? And communication was so scarce that a week later, a telegram was sent to Berman, the head of the gulag, and here's a small excerpt from that telegram. 
We have still not received information concerning the convoys, the length of time involved, the dates of arrival, the number of contingents or the equipment and provisions that will have to be transported as well. We have still not received the authorizations and government vouchers for the 20,000 metric tons of grain reserved for the first installment of this plan. The second installment of the 20,000 metric tons have been either programmed or reserved. This threatens to destroy the transportation plan that our services have worked so hard to put together. Moreover, the absence of funds, provisions, and budget authorization does not allow our commanders to make satisfactory preparations for receiving the deportees at their final settlement sites. In the meantime, beginning on April 9th, the first convoys of deportees began flooding into the Tomsk transit camp. Tomsk was far from being able to house these deportees, with constructions of the huts being far from finished. A food supply for the camp had not been organized, and they couldn't even dispatch any deportees for the rivers because they were still frozen solid. In three weeks, Tomsk received more than 25,000 deportees, and according to the camp's authorities, by April 30th, three-fourths of the arrivals were peasants and kokais who had been sabotaging the Stalin's collectivization, and the other quarter being criminals and declassees from the city. The deportees coming from Ukraine and northern cities as well from the Volga regions were starving peasants who had been loaded up and shipped off in a haste to on arrival could only be described as semi-cadavers. convoys were sent without the slightest consultation or planning. They consist of the immense majority of individuals who have lost a great deal of weight and are suffering from acute gastrointestinal problems. We have already seen a certain number of cases of typhus. On the way, they were rarely given any hot meals. They were not subjected to thorough hygienic measures, which explained the lice and enormous parasite infestations. In general, the whole organization of transfers were defective. For example, the convoy that left Butaisk on April 14th, headed for Tumsk. 200 detainees were added to decongest a local prison en route to Tumsk. Upon leaving, the latter were given bread for a two-week trip. Naturally, this food was completely consumed during the first three days, so that the rest of the trip, these people had nothing to eat. 8% of the deportees put in the convoy that arrived in Tumsk on May 6th were already emaciated. Half of the people who arrived at Tumsk had to be immediately hospitalized. So testimonies like these are confirmed by the numerous amounts of source material, including convoy logs, which most of the time had four pieces of information. And these are the information. Number one, the number of deportees loaded. Number two, the number of deaths in route. Number three, the percentage of individuals who had lost large amount, amounts of weight. And fourth, and the percentage of those infested with lice. Like, for example, in convoy number 24, which arrived in Tombs on April 30th, there were 62 deaths during the 10-day trip. Damn. On arrival, 90% were emaciated. They received no more than 300 grams of bread a day, which was about six slices. Fuck. And almost nobody arrived with any provisions except for the clothes that they were wearing. On another convoy that arrived on May 6th, there were 69 deaths en route, more than 400 semi-cadavers, and they also received no more than 300 grams of bread per day. 
So for the local authorities, the arrival of the convoys, it complicated the shitstorm that they were already facing. And three immediate problems brought on by the convoys jumped up to the top of their to-do list. What should they do with all their quote-unquote semi-cadavers? So the problem with dealing with these emaciated people was that Tom's was still being built from the ruins that it was. Mm. Plus, they only had a very basic infirmary with only 40 beds. So they had no idea what to do with all these people that were coming in that were just skinny and just, like they said, emaciated. They had no room for them. Number two, how can an explosive epidemic be avoided? And last but not least, and how could they manage the forced transits? Over a period of several weeks, the number of deportees arriving were five to six times greater than the camp's capacity. So, statistics provided by Tom's Transit Administration counted more than 500 deportees died in the camp during the first few during the first three days following the arrival. Three days. In the course of the next two months, more than 1,700 deportees would die specifically as a result of a general weakening of the body. All this was going on in tombs while the world seemed at a standstill. The rivers were still not navigable and the boats were still unavailable. But the convoys were coming in and they were coming in hot. They were coming in hot. Here's a list of the convoys and the date. April 9th, one convoy. April 11th, two convoys. April 20th, two convoys. April 24th, three convoys. April 27th, two convoys. April 29th, two convoys, and April 30th, two convoys. Remember, the plan was for every one convoy that would come in, one had to leave. That was the plan. Nothing, nobody was leaving Tomsk. Tomsk. They were just arriving, which made a total of 25,000 deportees arriving and getting stuck in Tomsk in april alone and if that wasn't bad enough they were ordered that a detailed check be made of the last five convoys that arrived during the last days of april this was ordered through a telegram dated may 2nd stating that stating that information the gulag officials received that the cleansing operations in the cities which the last five convoys were from had been conducted without instructions given so not only were they receiving all these people they still had to build up the fucking camp itself and then they get a list saying all right the last five convoys that arrived remember each convoy was 3600 people that's what that's almost 15,000 people the last 15,000 people you're gonna have to detail check them. You're gonna have to go and check every single person because the because the cities where these motherfuckers are coming from, the police weren't paying attention. Mm-hmm. So we need to make sure that everyone that's there is supposed to be there. <laughs> oh boy! But the thing is, no one really knows why it was only five convoys that needed to be checked, as there were many more convoys sent to other camps that came from the cities the five Tom's convoys were from. Because remember, there's going to be three, there's three different transit camps. Tomsk is one of the biggest ones. So they get a telegram saying, check the last five. 
But Tom's was the only camp that was the, that that got that telegram. The other two camps didn't get a telegram, even though they were still getting people from the same cities that the Tom's camp was getting were getting the deportees from. Some say that quickly the OGPU leadership were informed about excesses and deviations committed by the authorities in these areas. They were following complaints sent in by relatives of those who had been unjustly reported, as we learned in our first part. So beginning May 6th, the basis for the deportation of over 6,500 people began and lasted more than three weeks which revealed a large number of cases of negligence and abuse. 20% of the deportees whose cases had been examined, which were 640 people, were individuals completely unsuited for labor. Most of, the, most of these deportees, 480 of the 640, were between 50 and 60 years old. About 109 were between 60 and 70 years old. 32 were between 70 and 80 years old, and 19 were between 80 and 100 years old. And here are some of the cases of these individuals. First up, we have Mark Prevolov, age 103, deported in the convoy from P.T. Gursk, unable to stand completely decrepit does not speak second we have Ed Vokia Kotelnikova age 85 without family cannot stand up half naked bedridden decomposing semi-cadaver unable to speak or move then we have Alexei Ostrovmenko age 69 invalid expelled from Pitigorsk with his wife also an invalid says he works as a caretaker he and his wife can move around, but only on crutches. Mark Pervolov was 103 years old. 103. Man. Another group of seven. <laughs> Look, the officers, I'm assuming they were, they were put in pairs, right? That were involved on making these arrests mm -hmm. for the most part. Right, they're putting pairs. I'm, they're, I don't. I, I groups. Wouldn't, I wouldn't know. It didn't say. But what was the conversation? We're like, yo, we gotta meet this quota. Just pick this old well, guy. Up. Well, you, you also have to remember, most of these people that were that were these uh, these policemen, they were communists, so they already didn't like all these poor people coming into their cities. Yeah. So they were probably just picking and choosing, whoever the fuck they like. You know what? Fuck Mark. He's 103. Fuck him. Just take him. That's that's the like the attitude. He was too they had. old. He was too old, probably. Huh? They were just they were just like man, just take him out. Just take him out. Just take him out. Remember, they would just walk to the streets and just point us up. Oh, you're getting deported. What? Yep, you're getting deported. You're looking a little funny. You're getting deported. You're, you're looking a little bit too old there. <laughs> so another group of several hundred were found to be abusively deported by officials in the course of just round or just random roundups that had no objectives other. Than to fulfill quotas, but more horrifyingly, just to get the fucking job done. Mm, so no fucks were given to these. First up, we have Alechenko, age 57, 
He was an ace mechanic worker deported because he had his own house and in the past had worked in a small bookstore. Up next, we have Dmitry Chintaipki, age 44, manual laborer who came from Central Asia, intended to take his family back to Central Asia, was picked up when doing errands in the market, taken directly to the convoy and shipped off the same day without family. Up next, we have Maria Lavrikova, age 35, waitress in the Rivera Hotel on South Chi. According to her statements, her husband is a battalion commander in, in the Amur province and holds two red flag decorations, deported with her father, age 71, her mother, age 70, and her brother, age 22, for reasons unknown. Up next, we have A. Popova, age 30, arrested in the Tuopse train station where she had gone to meet her niece, works in the port and cannot in any way be considered a parasitical element. Dude, when, when, they, when they were looking at her papers, they're like, why'd you get deported? She's like, that's, you're that's asking, what I'm saying. Like, I'm like, why are you asking me? And they're, like, and they're like, fuck, why, why? Up next, we have Evguniai Markovkina, age 18, deported with her sister, age 17, and two brothers, age 14 and 5, because her father, who died in 1931, had been a shady operator in his past. The five-year-old died en route, and since no one was authorized to leave the convoy, the boy's body was thrown out of the window. They were arrested because their dad, who died three years before, was they shady. They had a grudge on him. So between the that back and forth, so between the back and forth between Tomsk and the OGPU, it was discovered that of the that of the six thousand four hundred and sixty-three deportees that were checked, fifty-one percent of them had been released after it turned out that they had been unjustly expelled from their homes. They were released, but without given the right to return home, and also without being able to settle back in over a dozen cities, like Moscow, Leningrad, and a few of the, of the larger ones that we mentioned in part one. What exactly happened to these thousands of people is unknown. After Siberian officials said, oh shit, yeah, my bad, they let them go and kept on with the you know, with the task in hand. So a lot of these people, they're just like, oh, fuck, all right, sorry. And they, they, some of these people were let go. No one knows exactly what happened to these people. Or they were actually just shipped off and said they were let go. Mm-hmm. As we're going to find out, there's a lot of misinformation that's going to be um, passed around. So during this shitstorm, during the inspection of these thousands of people, the Tom's camp was also dealing with another convoy of contingents that were continuously flooding in. The D-class C elements from Moscow and Leningrad. The inmates who decongested the jails and those with petty convictions. They were arriving without a single thing outside of what they were wearing to the most remote and most inhospitable of western siberia settlements so the first convoy which consisted entirely of prisoners arrived from moscow on april 18th with 635 deportees followed by four additional convoys one from leningrad which arrived on april 20th and another from moscow which arrived on april 27th and two further convoys that arrived on may 10th 1933 in three weeks tom's which was already saturated and overpopulated, received an additional 6,000 deportees. kept on coming, dude. So of the 8,000 who arrived to Tomsk in the later half of April, which were ahead of schedule 
Because if you listen to our last episode, you heard how many convoys were shipped out weeks early in desperation from the sheer number of people being deported. Remember how we were talking about a lot of these police officers who were shipping these were supposed to wait till May? A lot of these people that were just getting too bad. Just ship them. Just ship them out. Just yeah. ship them out. They're getting shipped out anyways. Well, in reality, they were supposed to be the first wave of deportees that cleansed the city. Obviously, this was a huge concern for the Siberian officials. And in a telegram sent over to the OGPU, they called their plan an illusion. That it was impossible to try and do both re-educating these prisoners and making them adapt to these harsh environments. These were different people than those sent a few years earlier. These weren't farmers or village people. These were criminals and people from the city who could not and would not be able to fend for themselves. The head of the OGPU in the response telegram stated that, the, that beginning in May, Moscow and Leningrad will start sending over the strongest of the deportees and that a minimum of 25% of these deportees would be able to go directly to work at a camp and immediately start working. So the head of the Siberian Gulag, Alexeyev, sent a long telegram to the head of the, G- of the OGPU on May 15th. And here is a telling and frustrated excerpt from that telegram. As of today, we have received 8,000 urban and socially harmful elements consisting of men, 92% of them under the age of 30, very poorly clothed and lacking any skill or taste for work and often suffering from syphilis. I emphasize that putting this contingent to work within the usual structures does not in any way guarantee return on investment. To avoid massive escapees and in order to keep these socially harmful elements from disturbing the locals, we are sending them to the most distant northern districts and bringing additional guards and supervisory personnel from districts that present no particular problem. In my view, it is indispensable to establish a special set of rules for the D-class E and socially harmful elements that is different for the other colonists. In, in any event, considering the great difficulties involved in agricultural development in Western Siberia, I urgently ask you that you no longer send this type of contingent. Telegraph your decision on all the points read in my dispatch. So Moscow didn't reply for two weeks. Finally, on May 27th, the head of the Gulag sent the following response. There are no plans to send you further contingents of D-Class C's. I repeat, there are no plans to send you this type of element. We approve your proposals to settle these contingents in remote, isolated areas. You will have to see to it that camps are rapidly set up and that the D-Class and socially harmful elements are put in them. You're able to put two and two together that clearly nobody knew exactly what to do with the D-Class and socially harmful elements. The OGPU just wanted them the fuck out of Moscow and said, not our problem. And now the Western <laughs> Siberians are just like, fuck, we got too many. Just start sending them north. Fuck it. And that's what they were doing. In the meantime, this type of contingent was still arriving at Tomsk. On June 17th, a little over 1,700 new arrivals from Moscow set foot in Tomsk. In the confusion, 200 deportees managed 
to escape. Hmm. The regional officials once again sent a telegram asking Moscow, chill, bros. You guys are saying you're going to stop, and then bam, we get 1,700 of these motherfuckers. Seriously, you guys need to stop. We don't have any room, so please chill the fuck out. And word got to stalling about the struggle against his criminal elements and the Siberian officials and demanded an, and demanded an explanation from the head of the OGPU, Genrik Iagoda. He replied back to Stalin that currently they sent over 17,000 from Moscow and Leningrad alone to Western Siberia. And that from there they were being settled in remote and isolated areas in their region which extended as far as 500 miles from Tomsk. They were under increased surveillance and were waiting for the opening of the camps in these isolated areas. And a big fuck you to Siberia, he told Stalin that it was not desirable to stop sending these deportees from the cities. So Western Siberians like y'all need to stop sending us these people because they don't know how to they're not they're, they're not they don't know how to do anything. You're just sending us criminals. Nobody wants to work. Nothing's being built. We're not gonna send the LGPs. We're not gonna send you any of these people. Where it gets to Stalin, hey, what's going on? And then they tell Stalin, look, we need to keep sending these people out. We need to keep sending them to Western Siberia. So it was during this time, during this back and forth, that word of what happened on the island of Natsino a quote-unquote incident that local officials had tried their hardest to hush up had just arrived at the head of the OGPU's Western Siberia's office, and not yet Moscow, but a little more on this later. But shit hit the fan when the convoys in Tomsk were being prepped to be sent to their final destination starting in May 14th, when convoy number 744, coming from Leningrad, arrived in total one 100% violation of all directives given. Nobody on board had a personal file. There were no files at all. There, nobody had a reason for extraction. Nobody was informed of either the date or the departure. The number of it, nobody was informed of the individuals in the convoy and the composition of the convoy. They didn't know who was single or who was with a family. People, it was, it just, was just a clusterfuck. It was just a big, here you go, fig, figure it out. And this was the very first of many convoys sent out like this. That towards the beginning of May, this was a common thing. And it took Western Siberia a while to figure out who these people were. But the head of the Department of the Special Settlement described the anonymous deportees like this. The contingent that was sent to Nazino consists of the rejects of society the most declassy and most socially harmful elements in the cities, criminals and delinquents who stop at nothing. This ranges from stealing, pillaging and killing. But in reality, what these anonymous convoys were full of were the street people that were being banished from all the cities. All the vagabonds, all the petty delinquents, the ruffians, the hooligans and the beggars. So. Let's take a second and quickly recap who have been sent over in case we have any confusion because we're kind of jumping around the numbers to keep a linear story. A first set of deportees, about 3,000 out of 8,000, did in fact have detainees who had been arrested and sentenced over the last couple of months to term varying from one to five years in camp. 
They were mostly petty delinquents who, although young, some as young as 15, were repeat offenders and had been convicted mainly of theft, hooliganism, and speculation, which is a selling product in short supply. Then we have a larger number of deportees that had been rounded up by police for having violated the passportization laws. These were mainly homeless persons, beggars, vagabonds, and other quote-unquote socially harmful elements. Then we have the thousands that the police did not hesitate to arrest and deport, whose only offense was literally only leaving their passports at home or traveling through Moscow and Leningrad during these raids. Remember that anyone without papers in these passport zones appeared to be suspects to the police. It also didn't help that it was a memo addressed to the city police. The police officer should always keep in mind that any individual without a passport or any unregistered individual is already suspect who has either committed a crime and has escaped prison from a camp or from deportation and is trying to cover his tracks or is about to commit a crime. He's about or he's about. So they're like, if he doesn't have a passport, he's either a criminal or he's about to be a criminal. <laughs> so it's kind of a no shit. That a lot of innocent people were just getting shipped off. Especially since the same city police officials that were doing the arresting had the power to also sentence an individual. Depending on the specific case and degree of their social dangerousness. But as shit got out of control, even this minimal procedure was not being respected. And that's exactly what started happening toward the end of April in 1933. It seems that the great majority of those arrested, deported, and rounded up on April 27th, 28th, and the 29th, which was the beginning of a citywide cleansing operation in Moscow and Leningrad, it was during these three days that being caught outside without your passport could have serious consequences, like the following cases. Oh boy. V. Novogilov. Stoker in the Compressor Factory, three-time award winner, wife and child duly registered in Moscow. After work, he was preparing to go to the movies with his wife. While she was getting ready, he went out to buy cigarettes and was rounded up and deported the same day. And if you guys watch the documentary, they actually cover some of these people that were covering and you're actually and you actually get to see the files that these people that these people carried on them that still survived because remember he uh our host of the documentary that's when he was in the ship and he was looking at pictures yeah and, and those, yeah the cases yeah and some of the these, archives of some that. of the people that were mentioning you can actually see what they looked like and the official files that they carried on the documentary that you can find on amazon prime mm-hmm Up next, we have G. Mazin, chief assistant of a fire brigade, member of the Kremlin fire brigade, rounded up in the street. The Kremlin passed Nazin showed the police was not taken into consideration. We have Pavel Alexeyevich. He had just joined the communist youth in March 1933, card number 1387815, and had paid his dues until August. A fact certified on the card that he had managed to retain. Pavel was a resident of the orphanage run by the Central Executive Committee in Moscow and was living in Bushkino for the summer. Pavel and other residents of the orphanage had been told to collect all the wind instruments left in the orphanage building in Moscow in order to prepare for the concert on May 1st. The administration had given them all the necessary documents, certificates, and attestations, but as they were getting off the train, they were arrested and deported. Pavel's communist youth card and other documents were of no help. 
this kid had all the proper paperwork. He had certificates. He had like attestations. He had more documents. He had his ID. He had his ID card. He had his ID number. He had everything. And the police were like, "Man, ship him." Oh boy. So Moscow residents legally residing in the capital, arrested in the street, only represented a small percentage of the cases of deportation. The vast majority of deportation cases were those who were temporarily staying in the capital or just passing through it. They were arrested in the train stations despite all their certificates and other paperwork that were given by the government office or company, like the following. We have Sergei Andrevich. A railway mechanic employed in 13th section of the Leningrad-Moscow Railway. Arrested in Moscow train station as he was passing through the capital on his way back from his annual holiday and with his travel order properly certified. Next we have Galina Georgievna, wife of the reserve commander of the cruiser Aurora, now a museum. It was part of the three fleet ship that served during the Russian-Japanese War. She was arrested while she was passing through a Moscow train station on her way home to Leningrad while she was pregnant while she was pregnant. Had with her all her papers and a train ticket for Leningrad. Gave birth on the island of Nazina. And if you watch the documentary, we, we he actually covers uh, this Galina. And when he and when he reads the ending part that gave birth on the island of Natsino, he just takes off his glasses and just rubs his head. And he's like, what the fuck? So with all these innocent people being arrested and shipped off to Siberia, every single person was told that it was easier just to be deported and that once they arrive in Tomsk, their case would be cleared up and be immediately shipped back. This was the standard fucking reply given by officials to the thousands who had and will be arrested, who were not even authorized to inform friends or family of their situation. So whether it's 25,000 deportees, some criminals, some peasants, but many innocent people, the Tomsk transit camp became very unstable. Too many people to look after while still waiting another 350,000 to pass through in the following three months. So out of desperation, Tomsk officials decided that getting rid of the most dangerous or troubled deportees was of the utmost priority. So on May 14th, 1933, several thousand elements were hastily put on barges and they were headed to Natino Island, a.k.a. Cannibal Island. So now we're picking off where we last left off last week with our official Chepkov, who had received two different telegrams back to back, letting him know that plans had changed and he had about a week or so to receive a couple thousand deportees to start off. Remember, he was kind of stressing it. He's like, he got a telegram. He's like, hey, you have till the end of, of, of May or to the beginning of June to have this place ready. He received this telegram on like May 2nd and May 1st. So he's like, damn, I have a month and a half. All right, fuck it, whatever. And then he received the te second telegram saying, you know what? Have everything ready by the end of July. Like, All right, cool. That gives me 
May, June. I have, I have three months. I think I have three months is enough for me to build something. And then he gets the last reply. Sorry, you're expecting a few thousand in about a week. Hmm. So Chepkov called a meeting with other officials and each one said that nothing was ready. Literally nothing. Since they were expecting to arrive by the end of July, not the beginning of May. And still they were expected to have to deal with the usual exiled farmer or urban element and not the declassied element and criminal that was being exclusively sent over. So at this point, they were still thinking they were getting farmers and people who knew how to work the land. They weren't expecting criminals and people from the city. And on top of this, they still had not received any word regarding the boats that had been promised for transporting the deportees up the Obi River to their final settlement site. So the bakery in the town of Alexandrovskoye was stalled. Food stocks were at the lowest point because the ice breakup on the river had just begun. So for months, no river boats had been able to travel to come up the OB. Manufactured goods, they were basically non-existent. And all there was in the local shops were 30 pairs of men's boxers, sheets of tin plate, and a few hundred pairs of ham boots. So Chepkov immediately sent a telegram to leadership explaining that it would be several weeks before he would be able to receive the deportees. He didn't know it, but he was wasting his time because the same evening they were told that the authorities of Tumsk was very congested and that Chepkov needed to help with the immediate dispatching plans. They began to discuss where exactly the first batch of dangerous deportees were going to be dis disembarked at. And this is what Chepkov had to say about this. It was the first time I had to deal with that kind of group. I've always worked in the countryside. I admit that when I found out that I would have to deal with the socially harmful elements, I panicked. Everyone agreed that we couldn't unload these elements in either Alex Drosky or near the village where the former Kulaks had already settled. If we did that, all hell would break loose. It would be the end of the collectivation. They would steal everything, pillage everything, and kill the local people. So it was decided by Chefkov and the other local officials that it would be best to unload them on an island in the middle of the Obi River, located opposite of the village of Natsino. From there, they would be taken by boat in little scattered groups to their final place where they would settle. Far from any inhabited area along the Natsino River, one of the Obi's smaller streams. So since the Kamandaturas lacked literally everything, they decided to quote-unquote ask, basically they just made, all the local economic organizations, such as the Kokais and other rural Soviets, to provide within two weeks hatchets, saws, and shovels. So they made everyone who was living in the Western Siberia give up any extra supplies they had. Mm -hmm. Any of the tools needed for the new arrivals to build shelters, and to mobilize all available motorboats and rowboats to carry all the deportees from the point where they were taken off the larger riverboats to their settlement sites, and to make available to Commander Chekhov the food stocks in storehouses along the way that he will later replenish at a later time. That's the part that I was like, what? Where they were like, look, we're going to travel off the Obi River with a bunch of hungry people. Let us have all these extra stockpile foods that you guys have as we travel up the river. But don't worry. Chekhov here, he will give you guys back your food. 
spreading that false hope. So while Chekhov was busy dealing and preparing all this, back in Tom's back in the Tom's transit camp, they were preparing the shit out of the deportees that arrived from Moscow and Leningrad. Before May 15, 16,000 deportees from Ukraine were expected, in addition to the 25,000 already in the camp. So it's easy to say they were doing all they could to try and get rid of as many deportees as they could over at Tom's. I had to receive two, sometimes three convoys a day and to send out the same number. That's why I was unable to supervise in detail the sending out the four barges full of deportees on May 14th. This was a quote about one of the officials at the Tom's transit camp. Shit. Everyone was overworked. So the party committee of the Tomsks recommended an official to supervise the operations of loading and convoying over 5,000 elements as far as the Alexandrovsky region. Only problem was he had no experience working with special settlers. So it's time to move. Then I have four barges that were normally used for transporting wood and were 100% not suited for moving around thousands of people. The only adjustment that was made to these barges was that they added a barrier to separate the men from the women. But because these Siberian officials now knew what type of contingents they had on board, officials were ordered to not stop for any reason during the five, six day trip up the OB. All deportees were crowded below decks with no opportunity to go on deck. It was so crowded that many fainted when they finally arrived at the designated point and they fainted by the overwhelming fresh air. They were all given a five-day ration of bread. Five fucking slices of bread with one slice of bread to be eaten per day. One. Hmm. If this wasn't grim enough, the reality of the provisions taken on board were ghastly, to say the least. A few sacks of sugar and salt along with the 20 tons of flour, which was four kilos per person. That's what they had on board which was just enough to last them a little over a week. Ten days at most. But if that wasn't bad enough, they had, o- they had overloaded the barges to the point that nothing, that nothing else could be taken along. This includes no cooking utensils, dishes, bowls, or tools. That might have allowed the deportees to make food for themselves or set up the most basic of cover. A few years after all this had passed, Kusachov was asked why he thought it was a good idea to dispatch thin, ragged, poorly clothed, nearly shoeless individuals with not even a bowl to eat, not one cup to drink, or not even a spoon. Not even a fucking spoon. This is what he fucking said. I was convinced that the commanders to whom we were sending this contingent were properly prepared to receive it, since they had received all the necessary instruction during the meeting that had been held in March. 
Moreover, had I gone beyond the norm, I would have certainly been accused of sabotage or more likely of yielding to the dizziness of success. Finally, I had been told by the leadership that if the deportees were not properly clothed, if they had not brought with them the 50 to 100 kilos to which they had right under the regulations, it was not up to us to provide them with clothing or provisions. With, with food only to last them 10 days at most, another problem while on these barge boats was the lack of guards to escort the thousands of elements. On the way to Tomsk, the number of guards in the convoy was one guard for every 100 people. But officials had a difficult time in finding 50 guards, but were left with no choice but to end up recruiting poor old people who had been wandering the streets of tombs. And these were your guards. Chekhov, our Siberian official, had this to say. These people who had neither shoes nor uniforms were no way distinguished from the deportees that they were supposed to monitor. They had neither authority nor discipline. If they gave an order, no one listened to them. When I gave them the guards an order, they ignored me and told me they wanted to go back to Tumsk because they had been tricked when they were recruited. They had been promised they would have been taken care of, given uniform, shoes, and lodge in their arrival. However, all they got was an old rifle, and then they were sent into Taiga to have people quote-unquote graze, as they called it. And if things could not possibly get worse for Chepkov, on May 15th, he received a telegram that another 4,900 deportees were being sent over to him on four barges, but had arrived on the Verkhvatovsk Pier on May 18th. So Kuchnichov, the official in charge of these four barges, claims that Chekhov only said that the drop-off would be between the village of Natsino and Proletarka. Right? He said, look, he said, I'm just dropping them off between here and here. The only problem with the only problem is that there's fucking seventeen hundred fucking miles between here and here. Fuck. But luckily, luckily for Chekhov, the pier which all these people were dropped off were only a hundred miles north of Natsino. So this dude, by the grace of God. Chose a random spot to drop them off. To drop off these people. Because he said, look. To drop them anywhere off between here and here. Like I said, the only problem is. The distance distance between (laughs) here and here. Is 1,700 fucking miles. He dropped them off. Only 100 miles. Off of Natsino. Jeez. Which is kind of incredible if you think about it. Out out of everything he could have fucked. Like he could have dropped them off. That's what he ended up fucking doing. That's still 100 miles though. But we know Chevkov was unprepared to handle all these people. His superiors knew and he was as he was in direct contact with them. Chekhov tried as hard as he could to try and gather clothing and other belongings. The only problem was that his superiors never forwarded his concerns to the higher up officials. So with nothing and nowhere for the deportees to eventually arrive to, even with plenty of complaints and communication stating so, the plans of settling these deportees were going to still be carried out. Chekhov was telling his superiors 
we're not ready. We don't have boats. We have no tools. We have no food. Everything's going to shit. What do we do? His official, his bosses were like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Well, well, you know, we'll let everybody know. They didn't let anybody know. They just kept it amongst themselves. They didn't pass it up to any of their higher ups. So traveling upstream against the current on the only usable motorboat with two assistants and two guards, it took Chekhov three days to cover the 160-mile trek to this pier. After arriving, he immediately took over the operation and had the convoys land several dozen kilometers downstream on a deserted island on the middle of the OB. This island was about two miles long, almost half a mile wide, which was across the river from the little village of Natsino. And so on May 18, 1933, 5,000 deportees arrived on the island of Natsino. And until nightfall, Chekhov and his assistant were kept busy trying to count the deportees and perform oral roll call, which was an impossible task now, since all the lists they had were written in pencil on wrapping paper that had been soaked on the way to Natsino. Jeez. So the number they counted which was 5,300, which was 5,318, was more than the registered in the convoy log, which was 4,900, and different from the list when shipped up to Natsino, which is 5,000. So the paper said, when they got, so these people were shipped to Tomsk. They said, the convoy went, the convoy went around to Tomsk, you have 4,900 people in this convoy. Correct. When the convoy was shipped to Natsino, they loaded 5,000 people. When they got to Natsino, they counted 5,318. So, there, so uh, while they were trying to figure out this whole confusion, the captain of the river convoys was threatening to demand extra money for payment of having his boats docked for too long if he made it, mac- if he made it back to Tomsk too late. Hmm. So... Chepkov, he had three different lists. He said, all right, we count 5,318 people on the island. I see a list that said the convoy only had 4,900. But when we left Tom's to get to Natsino, we had 5,000. He had this list while trying to do oral roll call. What he was trying to do... On that rapping. (laughs) While he was trying to... So on his own, he was trying to be like, uh, Josue, Josh, is there a Josh here? All right, get off the boat, Moses. That's 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 what he always that's, that's what he was trying to do. He was trying to get diligent, but then the like like the the, the captain of the river was like, "Hey man, you gotta hurry this shit up, or else I'm gonna charge you guys if I'm late to Tom's." So Cherkov said, "Fuck it," and decided he's like, "You know what? I'm just not gonna do the personal roll call, and I'm just gonna count the people being unloaded." The women were first. He counted 322 of them. And then the men, 4,556. 27 bodies of deportees who had died on the trip were also unloaded. Once unloaded, a third were so emaciated and weak that they were no longer able to stand. Fuck. Chekhov ordered the stronger ones to help bring the ones unable to stand out of the hold and onto the island. Here's what Chekhov had to say about this. I never lived in the city 
I had no idea what these criminal and urban deportees were like. I'd imagine they were different from these injured and ill people, these poor wretches with deathly pale faces, most of them in rags, a few dressed in city clothes, with shoes and a coat, but all of them without even a bag. All these people got off the boat. If they could still stand up, with nothing, without any provisions at all, every single one empty-handed. So once unloaded and set down on the island, Chekhov then ordered for the 20 tons of flour to be unloaded. But while everything was being unloaded, a fight broke out for the sacks of flour and the guards opened fire, wounding several deportees. After this incident, Chekhov ordered the boats to cast off and unload the supplies on the other side of the river in the, by the village of Natsino, where they'll be safe from any future attacks, but not from the damp and the cold. Mm. A product of always being a short supply, which were the sacks, a large portion of the flour on the barges had been directly poured into sandbags that were deposited directly into the earth, into the earth which was soon covered in snow. So for hours after the boats were being unloaded, a snowstorm began, which had thousands of starving and freezing deportees lighting wood fires to not freeze themselves to death. So the next morning on the island, now covered by a thin layer of snow and thick smoke from the dozens of wood fires burning, Chekhov once again tried to hand the flour out of one pound per person with nothing else available. Considering most arrived with nothing, they received the flour with their two hands and with the lucky ones using their fur hats to receive the ration. But after two hours of trying to feed over 5,000 starving, freezing individuals, things got hectic with hundreds of people being trampled as people were getting desperate. But once again, with the guards being untrained, triggered, happy dickheads, they opened fire and wounded another several dozen. They stopped handing out food and Chekhov set new rules, meant to speed things up, but turned out to be the worst thing he could have done. He now had brigaders who would receive daily portions from the administration, which is enough food to hand out and feed 150, feed 150 people. This obviously led to foul abuses with the more ruthless criminals taking up these positions and monopolizing the distribution of food. So Chepkov's like, look, I can't do this on my own. Let's do this. Let's have brigaders. Each brigader will handle a line of 150 people. We'll give him the food and he'll pass it out. So we'll have a couple, you know, we'll have brigaders all, 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 all over and that's how we'll pass out the money. The only problem was the only people that were strong enough to be the brigaders were the most fucked up, the most ruthless criminals. And they were starting to monopolize the whole fucking brigade position. Chekhov then took 30 of the strongest deportees to claim to know how to build clay ovens for baking bread. But this also backfired. The dirt was frozen below the surface and the volunteers were not able to dig deep enough. Plus, the small amount of clay they found was the shittiest possible. And to top it off, the 30 men who claimed to know how to build the clay ovens and they were put to work, they admitted they didn't know how to do anything, and they were hoping they were, that they were going to get some food for working. Fuck. Back on the island of Natsino, the dead were piling up. 
Here is a statement pulled from the mission report by the head of the convoy. At 2 p.m. on May 20th, I went to the island of Danzino with Commander Sepkov, where there was a terrible scramble, people crowding and fighting around the bags of flour. Bodies everywhere, a hundred or more, and lots of people crawling about and crying out loud. Give us bread, boss. It's been two days since we've been given anything to eat. They're trying to make us die of hunger and the cold. They told us that the people had begun eating the dead bodies, that they were cooking human flesh. The scene on the island dreadful appalling when we got back to the village of Nazina, we gathered all the assistant commanders and health personnel barely a dozen of us it was decided that one set up tents to shelter the most sick two mobilize the local population to construct ovens and three requisition all the ovens of the inhabitants of the village having done this i completed my mission i left fort tomsk with the convoy at 3 a.m on may 21st Seeing everything going to hell, Chekhov decided to go see what he could find in the way of food and supplies back in Alexandrovskoye, leaving the two commanders who came with him from Tomsk, Chikhalev, and Sulimenov in charge. With Chekhov gone, the next couple of days only got worse. The immense majority of those on the island had to get by with the sad ration of one pound a day of flour which they had to mix with the dirty river water, which you can guess caused some serious intestinal issues. I just mentioned that everyone in the island was to get by on the ration of one pound a day, but just because that's what was supposed to be given to them doesn't mean that that's what they received. The distribution was taken over by the more ruthless ones of the bunch, mainly gangsters. So it's no surprise to hear that in order for anybody to get their rations, they had to give up something, anything, for their rations. So if you had warm clothes, an overcoat, a pair of shoes, you gave them up in exchange for the piece of bread or a pound of flour. Hmm. And a brutal economy rapidly established itself on the island. A pair of shoes was worth three, one kilo loaves of bread or five saltfish. An overcoat could be exchanged for a two kilo loaf of bread, a package of tobacco, or two gold dental crowns. One gold crown for a box of matches or a newspaper, which was used for rolling cigarettes. And if, and if you're asking, what do you mean, or what do you mean, gold crowns? Well, these gold crowns were taken for the jawbones of the dead lying around the island and as more and as more people died this grisly practice turned into regular business as you can tell the guards weren't innocent and had a hand and had a hand in all of this using and abusing the power armed guards were not hesitant to go around and bully their way around the island stealing shoes and overcoats even going as far as killing deportees where they stood who quote-unquote cheated while food was being distributed. Here are some accounts of abuse at the hands of the local staff.
First we have Flatsenko Commander, who was known to throw deportees overboard who did not know how to swim and enjoyed seeing them struggle as they drowned. He would beat and injure deportees at a whim's notice, was part of the systematic non-distribution of provisions. Up next we have Sarapkin Commander, amused himself by having special settlers roll the boats. Those who rolled badly were thrown in the water. Several deportees drowned in this way. Next, we have Kulov, manager, systematically beat special settlers with a stick, extorted clothing from them by promising them better rations, forced special settlers to leap into the freezing water of the river to fetch the water birds he had shot. Then we have Sulimanov, left in charge on the island of Nazino, beat settlers with a stick, used them as oarsmen when he went fishing, behaving inappropriately with regard to individuals who were starving known to eat huge amounts of sugar in front of those waiting for their rations, to the point that he himself said he lost all taste for it. Bro, these guys were in charge of the fucking deportees! Fucking Hoofloaf, he would shoot birds and send the deportees out into the cold water. To get the birds so he could eat. Sulemenov, he was left in charge by Chekhov. And this motherfucker would beat the people he was left in charge of. And then, like, the the thing was, like, the picture they, the, like, the, the picture that's painted about him was, when you're up next to get your little sad rations, remember, you're only going to get if you're able to trade. Yep. So sometimes you're not going to get a lot. This dude just has a bags of sugar just stuffing his face with it. And he was just doing it just because he could do it. But the most serious of abuses concerned the guards to kill the deportees and those who were quote-unquote shot as in hunting. Guards and commanders that were implicated by the commission of inquiry blamed Chekhov and admitted they were only following orders as he'd given them the green light to immediately fire on anyone trying to escape. And the truth was that many deportees did try to escape on small, shitty rafts. Here is one official explaining. We didn't think anyone could escape from the island of Nazino. The current was very strong, the water was freezing cold, and the river was several kilometers wide. Without tools, they couldn't build a boat, but a certain number of criminals showed great ingenuity. By tying large dry branches together, they were able to make a sort of a primitive raft that could carry three or four people. Then they let the current carry them along. A persistent rumor was going around to the effect that about 60 kilometers downstream, there was a railway line that would enable them to get back home. Naturally, fugitive had very little chance of surviving. Most of them drowned or died of hunger. For hundreds of kilometers downstream, we found hundreds of bodies that had washed up on the banks of the OB. Something that's... I mean, it's it's sad, but one of the things that's not that's not mentioned, I mean, that's not part of the Nazino thing, was that 
after everyone was, you know, like all these bodies were washed upon shore, no one was burying anybody. So these bodies just stayed in the water or they washed up and they just stayed on the shore or, or whatever. Well, when the waters, because right now the waters are starting to freeze. So that's how a lot of people were dying. In the summer, when the water started to thaw and the tide kind of went down, all the local pillagers, specifically little kids, they were paid by the local merchants to go out and find dead bodies and take the crowns off of the dead bodies. And you got paid per, like, the sack that you brought. Yeah. So the year, so for, like, a few years after, you just see these little kids just running around, just mauling these dead bodies and just ripping the fucking the crowns off of them. And to think that all of these people were people trying to escape the, you know, Cannibal Island. So at the same time, Czechist officials believed that deportees were dangerous, were dangerous individuals who had to be eliminated for at least two reasons. One, because they were likely to join the criminal gangs of bandits that were still active in the Nirim region. And secondly, because some of the de- degenerate individuals were cannibals. So the OGPU was censoring postal centers and confiscating thousands of letters from the Ukrainian peasants describing in detail what was going on with the famine and the cannibalism. A few months earlier, about 200 kilometers south of Tomsk, hundreds of Kokais that were fl- that were fleeing the Siberian famine had been lynched because rumors started by the officials accused, de- accused them of kidnapping Russian children in order to eat them. And in 1933, the USSR was drowning with rumors of cannibalism. So right then and there, we already have the OGPU going around and trying to shush everything that's going on in Atsino. They go into postal centers and looking at letters that are coming from this area. Give it to me, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. Not trying to let anybody know what the fuck is going on. And on the island of Natsino, the first rumors about quote-unquote bodies being cut up and human flesh being cooked and eaten began to appear the day after the deportees were unloaded there. It only took them a day for them to resort to cannibalism, which goes to show you how hungry and desperate they were by the time they got here. Three days later, on May 23rd, the three health officers on the island wrote the first report on the situation of Natsino, which they submitted to the Department of Special Settlers. But the report was mainly a warning to alert of a possible typhus epidemic and barely mentions the conditions that deportees arrived in and to. The majority of the report, you know, it dealt with the high and rising mortality rate of dysentery that resulted from the eating, the flour the deportees were given and mixing it with the dirty river water. Adding to the already wicked condition the deportees were already in after not having eaten a hot meal since Moscow. Imagine going to, like, not having, dude, these people, fuck, man. So on May 21st, on May 21st alone, the health officers counted 70 bodies that died that day alone. The liver, the heart, the lungs, and fleshy parts of the bodies, which consists of breasts and calves, had been cut off. On one of the bodies, the head had been torn off. 
along with the male genital organs and part of the skin. These mutilations constitute strong evidence of cannibalistic acts. In addition, they suggest the existence of serious psychopathologists on the same day. May 21st, the deportees themselves brought us three individuals who had been caught with blood on their hands and honing human livers. Our examination of these three individuals did not reveal any extreme emaciation, but rather external signs of degeneracy. These individuals were immediately turned over to the head of the guard. But what did they do with these individuals? They just let them go and release them back into the island. Because, oh boy. Because they couldn't actually prove that they were the ones who killed the person whose organs they were caught carrying. Plus, there was literally no law or punishment against any people. Yeah, at one point, they, they, they stated that it was survival of the fittest. It's, it was one method of survival. And it wasn't until May 29th that were the first reported cases of murder followed by cannibalism that was recorded. Three deportees were arrested and taken to the nearest prison. And they admitted to having killed a young man and then eaten his livers and kidneys. But when it came down to reporting anything that was going wrong, the local officials did their best to minimize it, cannibalism included. This is what they stated in their report. About a dozen cases of cannibalism have been noted, according to the physicians. The individuals who committed these acts of cannibalism were not emaciated and starving. They indulged in cannibalism by habit because he had been cannibals for a long time. And the worst part of it all, that even though they were lying in this instance, there was some actual truth behind the statement of cannibalism by habit that made the report believable. There was a practice that was fairly known in the ruthless criminal world called Bleeding the Cow. The cow is a novice whom the ex-convicts asked to join them in attempting to escape. In general, the novice is flattered to find himself associating with famous criminals. However, he does not know that if they run short of food, he will be killed and his kidneys and his blood eaten Usually raw, the fugitives not daring to light a fire fear of being spotted. In the camps and prisons, cow eaters are called cannibals. Years before, an inmate escaped from jail along with another prisoner. Before being caught, he had eaten his companion's flesh. But it was not until the establishment of the Soviet system that the phenomenon gave rise to a series of specific slang terms. The cow, aka the baggage, aka the ram, aka the lamb. So would this be the cow? That that's that's actually that's actually a thing, the cow, bleeding the cow. So with this being common knowledge, the fucking Nazino guards, when it came for them to testify later on, they said that the cannibalism on the island was not due to them being hungry, but because of there were groups of three or four who were shipped along with their cow, and for almost fifty years, this was accepted as fact. This was legally the reason for the cannibalism on Atsino Island until the 1980s. Oh boy. 
when testimonies were collected from Latina and the neighboring villages whose testimonies painted a completely different picture than the one that was officially on record. Four testimonies collected mentioned several cases of women being savagely attacked by cannibals who cut off the breasts and calves. Some of them survived, whereas others died of their wounds and a few went mad due to these traumatic attacks. Two of the testimonies mentioned in particular the case of the quote-unquote wife of the communist leader who had been rounded up by chance in Moscow, deported to Tomsk, and then to Natsino who was tortured on the island when her breasts were cut off. It was only after this that finally leaders were sent to Natsino to look into the cases of cannibalism. And once again, the officials went to try and minimize the accounts of cannibalism while at the same time politicizing the ordeal. Note that the rumors regarding cases of cannibalism systematically spread by the D-Class C themselves are without foundation. These rumors obviously have political implications as it shows by certain particular circumstances that are supposed to emphasize this aspect. Commander Sepkov did not show vigilance in this regard. He did not locate the source of this rumor, did not expose the instigators, even though the latter were trying to turn the minds of deportees in a clearly anti-Soviet direction. So they were, they show up to the island, they get all these people, and then they try to say fake news. <laughs> they said this shit, no, no one's eating each other, and it's, and it's only they only want to say people are eating each other because they don't want to admit that our plan is working. Everyone's being an anti-Soviet over here. So the OGPU and the state officials eventually went to politicize the acts of cannibalism that were going around the USSR especially those of the USSR, at least privately. At least in their eyes, cannibalism was a defiant response to the state's allocations of goods. During the stay of these officials on the island of Natsino, 15 quote-unquote ringleaders were arrested who were making counter-revolutionary statements by quote-unquote spreading allegations regarding the cannibalism as a direct result of the famine caused and organized by the state. But as far as how much of the Natino Island was afflicted by cannibals, compared to the 5,000 of those that called the island home, the percentage was small, and the proven cases of cannibalism was not more than a few dozen, 50 at best. And as far as the profile of the Natino cannibal, all the cannibals were men, most were young, most had been born on the countryside, and most had already done time in a camp or prison. So because of this profile, I was like, these guys were men, they were young, they were born in the countryside, they were already doing time in a camp or prison. The officials were like, look, look, this isn't, they're saying they're eating people because of our plan, our plan's not working. That's not it. They're spreading all this counter-revolutionary, anti-Soviet rumors, rumors just to try to shit on us. Hmm. So 11 of the Nazino cannibals were sent to death by the OGPU panel. That was set up on July of 1933 to, quote-unquote, liquidate criminal activity. But ruling was intervened to overturn the decision on the ground that eating human flesh is not subject to penalty in the Soviet penal code. 
and the material conditions into which the labor colonists deported on the island of Nantino. You know, just blah. Just, just, that quote was just a lot of blah, blah, blah. blah bullshit. Just official bullshit. Basically, they overturned the ruling. They overturned the ruling because you can't sentence them to death because legally they did nothing wrong. They didn't kill anybody or at least proven that they did. And as morbid as it is, there is no law against that. And also, considering what was going on in the island of Nazino, you kind of have to take into consideration the desperation of the individuals of not being properly taken care of like they should have. So testimonies during this hearing also provided a sad but ingenious tactic executed by some of the more knowledgeable criminal minds. Some of those labeled some of those labeled cannibals knew they could not be tried as long as it could not be proven that they had murdered the victim. And as for spending a few months in prison while awaiting, while awaiting the investigation, that meant that at least in prison, you're guaranteed a roof over your head and a bowl of broth, which is better than freezing to death and then having to eat flour mixed with river water. Mm-hmm. Then on May 27th, a new arrival of deportees arrived on the island of Nazino. This was even after the official in charge of the convoys had returned to Tomsk from Nazino. Tomsk was not aware of what was going on in Nazino as everyone who did know was trying to hush it all up. 1,200 of the 3,600 were sent over to the island of Nazino in the exact same condition of the first 5,000 that were already there. And believe it or not, this, this second group arrived in a far worse condition than the original 5,000. A large number of them were already suffering from typhus, which is a bacterial infection, and the, the, like the symptoms are like fevers and headaches and rashes. So the officials on the island of Tino did what they could, and they isolated the people with typhus on one corner of the island. But with only six tents to the whole island, no medicines or even containers to boil water to try and disinfect the clothes of those with the typhus. This this is what the physicians this is this is what the physicians wrote in the report. In any case, the deportees rags would have not survived any washing and we would have found ourselves with totally naked individuals while every night dealing with below freezing temperatures. So they like, damned if we do, damned if we don't. We have no supplies to help them, and even if we do help them, their clothes are so shitty, they're not gonna last a wash. And if we try to wash them and disinfect it, disinfect their clothes, they're gonna be naked. And at this point, the temperatures are fucking freezing. So what the fuck do they do? <laughs> like, it wasn't until May 31st that Chepkov arrived back to Nazino. Because remember, he had left and left two of those pieces of shit guards in charge. And during his absence, there was an emergency meeting at the office of the district committee of the party to decide about what to do with those on the Nazino island. They read on Chepkov's earlier report, and as a trick credit for his plan, they ordered him to transfer everyone in Nazino to appropriate places in one week before June 5th, in accordance to their settlement plans, which was to mobilize the whole local population for
from breaking bread and feeding the deportees to requisition all the tools to build shelters, cooking utensils for preparing hot meals, and all available boats. So remember, before he left, Chekhov was like, dude, this is what we need to do to the people on the island of Natsino. But then he was sent to Moscow, and that's when he left his two people in charge. So when he came back, they had a meeting. And not only uh, in that meeting, they don't, not only did they take credit, like not only did they shit on him, but they took credit for his plan of getting people off the island of Natsino. And to shit on our buddy Chekhov, he was criticized for incompetence and violating the party's resolutions concerning the reception of special settlers. They put the blame on him for everything. They blamed him for everything. It was his fault nothing was built. It was his fault everything went to shit. He had one job and he couldn't do it properly. This was according to the district committee. So Chekhov was being used as a scapegoat. He was responsible for one thing, and that costed him. Remember, he never told his superiors how bad it got because his previous efforts of reforming them of issues were met with, well, just do what you can. Right? Well, because of this, he decided to inform his superiors. Well, because he decided not to inform his superiors, they found, when shortly after this meeting, a long report was written to the party secretary of the region to inform them of the situation. And it was through these party channels that the boss of the Western Siberia, Robert Ica, learned about the Nazino affair. So he kept telling his bosses, look, this is what's going on. This is what's going on. I don't have boats. What do I do? Just do what you can. I don't have food. What do I do? Just do what you can. So when it came to these people actually eating, he's like, fuck, I'm not going to waste my time and try to handle with people. Let me just try to figure out what to do. So he didn't tell anybody about what was going on on the island because he was trying to help them. Well, this came and backfired because... Because it was through other people that the main boss of the Western Siberia found out about the Nazino affair. And everyone was like, Chekhov was in charge of the Nazino. Chekhov was in charge of the island. He didn't get the food. He didn't build it in time. Instead of getting his account, his side of the story. Yeah. So the report was long. And in it, it provides details regarding the situation on the island of that time. So by early June, the temperature was always was always around freezing. There had not been one hot meal given to anybody on the island, not only because of lack of food, but also because of the lack of utensils. The report stated that a few tons of bread had been allocated to the deportees. Bread that was promised by the state to be paid back by Chekhov, if you remember, which was nowhere near enough to feed all the mouths on Antino. For weeks, everyone on the island had to survive on a daily ration of flour. They didn't mention any of the positives that Chekhov did. The fights he went through to try and get the people not to know anything to survive. The only thing they focused on was that he couldn't get shit done. He didn't get the island ready. He didn't get proper food to feed those on the island. Remember how, remember how Chekhov went out of his way into the nearby villages and asked for anything that he could spare, tools, food, and clothing? Well, they only took it to the account that the provisions he had were not enough. They didn't take into account that he had to fight for everything he had on the island. And as for the axes, Chekhov had the difficulty of deciding whether it was smart to put axes into the hands of the deportees who were already resorting to cannibalism. He opted not to hand them over, even though they were indispensable for cutting wood 
and building. So they blamed him for not giving any of the island, any of the people on the island Latino access, but he had a choice to make. Do I, <laughs> like, they're already killing each other. There's, and guys, if you guys see the doc, if you guys see the documentary when the show up to the island of Latino, is this, is this patch of land? There are no tree, there are no big trees. At, at best, a, they have big bushes. Like, there are trees, but, like, how big were those little trees? Like, three feet, four feet tall, and they were just scattered throughout? They were not going to be able to build houses on that island. So he's like, all right, what do I, do I give them the axes? Do I not give them the axes? And he decided not to. So finally, Chekhov started to move everyone off the island in Latino. They succeeded in, bar- in borrowing around 20 boats that were usable, and starting in July, they chose five sites up the Natsina River where they would settle those off the island. These sites had few hunter huts and fishing was good. The only problem was it took them a couple of days to travel upstream to these locations. And within two weeks, the island was almost completely empty. On June 12th, the count on the island of Natsino was 100 deportees. was 157 deportees. And these, and these 157 deportees could not be moved. During the transfer off the island, several hundred detainees died. These deaths were in addition to the 2,000 deaths that had already occurred since they set foot on the island of Natsino. Out of the 5,300 that arrived on Natsino, 2,586 were sent by boat from the island to their final settlements. But sadly, when these deportees arrived at the final settlements, they were met with the identical situation on Natsino. Except this time, they were literally left alone as the boats had to leave right away to grab a new batch of deportees. They were left behind with only a few tools to construct shelters, but a large of these deportees used the tools to build rafts to escape on. Most of the fugitives died when their rafts sank, and many more died as guards shot at them for trying to escape while very few who did manage to escape got lost in the Siberian wilderness. In the meantime, word of what happened on Natsino finally had reached the region's highest authorities. On June 12th, Robert Ica, the Siberian boss, demanded an explanation from the head of the C-Block, who then ordered a top official to go to Natsino and to assess the situation. But before this, the head of the C-Block's Department of Special Senators recounted his personal experience during his expedition to these remote places he stated that the situation was critical everywhere he went to the other final commandaturas and he described the typhus outbreaks were common in many camps while none were as bad as the island of Skoe, many went that far behind but they did discover why chepkov and the siberian officials had problems with receiving aid with provisions and boats it was all because the boats that belonged to the gosper the State River Company, which the Black had signed a contract with, they were all immobilized. And why? Because they had just replaced all their motors with new engine motors, but did not have the oil necessary to run them. Oil. Thousands of people died because of oil. Mothers, daughters, sons, fathers perished all because of oil. People were eaten alive because they didn't have the oil to run the boats that would have taken them their food. 
So on June 1st, the inspection team looking for answers to give the Siberian boss arrived back on Atsino Island, which were joined by Commander Chekhov. The official in charge of the inspection team and the one sent to look for answers was a devoted member of the Gulag who was sent to all report on plans, numbers, and figures. And figures. His first concern was to count the number of deportees who had died on the island. He decided that the number of 1,970 settlers was exaggerated beyond belief for political reasons. Making his tour around the island being led by a criminal serving as a nurse responsible for burials, he counted the graves on the island. There were 31 graves. They desecrated the graves to count the bodies in three of the graves. One of them exceptionally large, another larger than average, and one smaller one. With 55 count inside the large one, 22 on the average one, and 5 in the smaller one. Even Dalgith, the official in charge of this inspection team, tried to show that the number indicated by the local staff was complete bullshit and exaggerated because the rations they were receiving were determined by the bodies that were being buried. When so they went back to the Siberian boss and said, "Look, these guys were lying. Not this many, no, no. We only counted. We only saw thirty-seven graves. Where are the other one thousand five hundred and something graves? They were only saying these many people were dying because they wanted more food. But that makes no fucking sense. Naturally, you're assuming." That if they are being given food based on how many they are burying, that means the more you bury, the less food you get. The, the less food you get. Because those are less mouths to feed. So why would they lie that they're burying hundreds and thousands of people and fuck themselves out of food? It makes no sense, but this is the official report, report. handed to the Siberian boss, Robert. After this, they went to the closest settlement to the island, which was settlement number one. Here's a description Ivan gave of his visit to settlement number one, which had been occupied since the beginning of June by a few hundred survivors from the island of Natsino. A virgin space along the river, a primitive clay oven, rude huts made with pine branches, under which the deportees refused to take shelter, preferring to gather in the open around the wood fires, a single wooden hut which serves for lodging for the commander and the guards. They are all extremely dirty, lice-ridden, and emaciated, without shoes, dressed in rags. Some of them were naked. Since they had been here, it is clear that none of them have washed, and despite the beautiful weather, none of them want to bathe in the river. Most of them refuse to work, despite orders from the commander. We'd rather die than work. I made a speech telling them that those who went to work get increased rations, along with tobacco and clothing, and eventually their freedom, while those who didn't would receive the bare minimum. I have to admit that very few reacted positively to my speech. Most of them are useless. The rare ones who do work do so slowly and carelessly. So he tried to paint this kind of like beautiful picture of like there's this hut out by the river. It's a beautiful, it's beautiful weather. 
but these motherfuckers, none of them want to work. They're all dirty, even though the river's beautiful. None Great of them weather. Want, none of them want to wash. And when I tell them, look, if you work, we'll give you more food and we'll give you tobacco. And the more you work, eventually you work your freedom. They, they told me to go fuck myself. Fucking. Like, that's what he's trying to. Anyway, well, while he it's was. Politics, bro. While he was giving his speech, the deportees started shouting at him. You're starving the people. We're eating one another. Literally chanting, you're starving the people. We're eating one another. You're starving the people. We're eating one another. So he had his guards arrest 15 of them, which he wrote down as hotheads on his report. Hmm. He didn't say they were what they were saying. He didn't say they were arguing with me saying that we were overworking them and they had no food and they were eating each other. He just put hotheads, which could mean anything. But, a, but like, it, to them, it makes sense. Like, oh, you arrested these hotheads? Well, makes sense. They're all fucking criminals anyways. So once they left and went back to Natsino, Ivan stripped check off of his duties and received a severe blame to be recorded in his personal party membership file. The leadership of this area was then given to an official that arrived with Ivan, Frolov, a 22-year-old energetic Czechist who had been promoted amongst the ranks of commander in 1931. It was then decided to, to transfer again the deportees, this time to new settlement sites near the cross-section of the Obi River and the Nautsina River. The settlement sites that Chekhov had chosen a few weeks earlier were getting harder and harder and harder to reach, going upstream to provide provisions and tool and proper care. So once again, the poor people of Natino were going to get moved again, except this time they're going to get moved further down south. So that way the boats and everybody don't have to go so far up the river. This time, in this new settlement sites, strict rules were to be applied and anyone who did not work, got out of line, or caused trouble would be arrested and sent to a special court to hand out punishments. Ringleaders and parasites, they would be arrested as well. And provisions would be handed out daily depending on what you did for the day. 700 grams of bread for those who worked, 600 grams for the weekend ones, and 200 grams for those who declined to do anything. This time, even the local population surrounding these areas will be subjected to the rule of camp officials. Everyone was to work for a singular goal. They all worked to build a landing stage. Warehouses, public baths and huts and uniforms were handing out to guards. Each camp was given a list of decisions that would result in completing the economic plan of being able to mine for resources out of these areas. But once again, there was no plan, budget, and no schedule of when to provide funding for these decisions. Before winter arrived, the deportees were supposed to have cleared almost 1,500 acres and planted them in rye and have, and have gathered enough reserves of wood for construction and heating and of berries, mushrooms, and dried fish for the season when the river would be unnavigable. So on top of everything that was going on, with every all these people dying, everything, these officials were like, well, you guys were supposed to have acres cleared already. Where's the rows of flour? Like, where like, where are the rows of rye? Where's all the wood you guys are supposed to have? The river's going to freeze up any minute. What the hell are you guys doing? 
So they had no compassion. They were, they just did not care. So then Ivan and his team left Frolov for the job of implementing everything I just talked about. So he did what he could. He was able to get every able-bodied deportee and was able to convince a company to lend him for two months two construction brigades, which were about 60 hard workers, to build huts and bread ovens. And believe it or not, in a few weeks, a new settlement village was completed and the survivors from settlement settlement site number one were moved here, all 200 of them. (laughs) However, Frolov had no time to transfer the other 2,000 survivors of the Nazino island who were still living in those shitty settlement sites two to five further up the Obi River. And not only that, while building this new settlement village, he had to deal with not one, not two, but three convoys of deportees for a total of 4,200 individuals, all from Tomsk. Who had been delayed for weeks following the Natsino affair. Son of a bitch. So while everything was going on in Natsino, from an from unloading the deportees to the cannibalizing to ultimately leaving Natsino, the transit camps had continued to receive tens of thousands of deportees. Nearly a hundred thousand in total. Even as Gulag officials promised and assured that no further deportees will be sent to Western Siberia. The Tomsk transit camp received more than 6,000 in the month of June and just as many in July. And once again, the OGPU representative for Western Siberia sent a, sent a dispatch begging that no more be sent over to them, especially such large number of older and sick people as well as women with young children as they were not only useless in terms of helping with economic development but they themselves were getting rid of these deportees and sending them to dispensaries and hospices and hospitals all which were already at full capacity around the middle of july the tom's camp had received more convoys from more convoys from moscow alone exclusively of gypsies 14 1,440 men, 1,506 women, and 2,524 children, all who had been expelled from the capital in a new police operation that had begun in June and was completed on July 3rd. So even still, after after the Nazino island was being settled somewhere else, they were still receiving deportees. So if you can guess... The convoys did not relent for weeks, even after the Nazino affair. While things did get a bit better as by the end of June, most of the convoys sent over to the Alexandrovskole had provisions, tools, and equipment to last them a couple of weeks. But no matter how rosy they tried to paint the picture of their grandiose plan, they acknowledged that still, a large portion of the deportees had been shipped without merit and that many of the deportees refused to work, and that even more tried to escape the first day. In a special village where 340 deportees had been installed, in the first week, 120 had successfully escaped, 
which was due to the shortage of supervisory personnel and guards. For example, only 10 guards accompanied a convoy of over 1,500 deportees on the 4th of July. Almost every guard began requesting to go back to Tomsk as soon as they arrived, as they were refusing to go deeper into the region to assist. With only the threat of immediate arrest for desertion, getting them to remain and do their job. So we're starting to see that as time went on, word was getting back to the cities, back to the villages, about what exactly was going on. The USSR could only rely on tricking their own citizens into assisting and volunteering as guards and official personnel, but even then, that well was starting to dry up. But the deportation and exile of their unwanted citizens did not. It also did not help that rumors of cannibals roaming close to these special villages maintained the attention of all of Russia, resulting in more people not wanting to go and volunteer and get shipped off. Officials called them rumors, but there were actual records of cannibals staying close to these new settlement sites, and some were even arrested. On July 10th, Three deportees were arrested while they were eating human flesh. After running away, they had wandered into the Taiga wilderness for several days, where they encountered another group of fugitives. Then, after an agreement, they sacrificed their cow. But like we've seen over and over again, the field reporting what was going on were completely different and polar opposite with the dispatches that were being exchanged at higher levels. For example, a document on July 11th, one day after the arrested wild cannibals roaming around settlement villages. This is what the document said. The Natsino incident is over. The situation is under control. The huts, public baths, this disinfection rooms and storehouses are at full swing as are the distribution of clothing and stockpiling and provisions for the winter. Most of the special settlers are working hard. The development plan will be carried out slightly ahead of schedule. This is what the <laughs> official reports are saying. And these are the, what the reports people, the higher ups in the cities are getting. Bro, what? The f ahead of schedule, nothing has been grazed, nothing has been done. But luckily, at the same time, while the regional authorities and the OGPU were trying to minimize and sweep the Nazino incident under the rug, a young journalist, Velichko, was doing his investigating of the situation of the work colonists in the Alexandro district. Nobody knows whether he was just looking for a story to be his big break or this was a job given to him by the newspaper for which he worked for. But the subject of the special settlers was something that was curious to him. Considering how the state's propaganda of the deportees being settled were claimed as economic successes and the transformation from being criminals to being decent and hardworking citizens were regular articles published in the local press. This is what the local newspapers were putting in their fucking papers. 
So Felichko spent nearly three weeks in the Natsino area. The island and also the settlement sites along the Natsino River. What started off as an article for the local newspaper turned into a long report to which he sent to his superiors, Levitz, who was the secretary of the party committee of the Nirim region, Robert Ica, the Siberian boss, and fucking Stalin himself. So right now, if you're asking how a no-name nobody could reach Stalin directly himself, well, it was mainly because Stalin encouraged the locals to send him, to send directly to him signals to let him know what was going on at the local levels. Stalin encouraged Stalin encouraged snitching at all levels. He's like, I don't care if you are if you I don't care if you are a peasant or a millionaire. If if you see something that's not right, that's not pro USSR, fucking tell me and I'll fix that shit. So after describing in detail what happened in the Latino area from the deportees arrival to the evacuation and the mad panic to new settlement sites. He figured out the chain of events that led to the horrible situation that occurred and revealed by the facts that he gathered that the local officials had absolutely failed to understand what they had to do with the individuals for whom they were responsible for. And the dreadful mismanagement of manpower, as he put it, had not ended with the island's evacuation since the settlers had continued to die well after leaving Natsino. During his investigation, Velichko discovered that a little that a little more than two thousand people were still alive from the sixty eight hundred who had arrived from Tomsk. In his report, he also managed to talk about the ridiculous arrests and how many police were just deporting people as they have to just as if they just felt like deporting someone. He described in detail about thirty cases of individuals who had randomly come up to him, who had randomly come up to him while he was down there who told him their stories and begged him that he help them get permission to return back home to Moscow and Leningrad. Filichko was the first person to listen to any deportee and actually deliver their concerns and stories. According to Frolov's deposition, remember Frolov, he took over Chepkov's job after he was fired. He, so according to Frolov, he and everyone else was forbidden to receive any requests or complaints made by any deportee claiming to have been wrongly deported. If the latter presented a certificate, an attestation, or even identity papers, these documents were to be immediately confiscated as such papers can only have been stolen. According to Frolov, one day a deportee came up to me, told me, told me he was a candidate for membership in the party and asked me which communist cell he should put himself down for. I asked to see the card. He gave it to me and said he paid his dues for the first month of the current year. I took his card to the district community and there I was told this card must have been stolen. Imposters and mass enemies with party cards in their pockets. They're everywhere. Sent from Tulumsk. Velichko's long 20-page letter arrived in Moscow at the beginning of September 1933. After reading it, Stalin ordered that it be circulated among the members of the Politburo, 
which is the political bureau of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, which was the highest policy-making authority within the Communist Party. He also made the party's highest officials sign the end of the letter as proof that these officials were now aware of the Nazino affair. The Politburo assigned one of the high officials who was also a member of the Supervisory Commission to look into the matter. They supervised a commission that included officials of the party, the judiciary, which were the local judges, the OGPU, and the Gulag. So this committee is no fucking joke. No one's playing anymore. And I think the only reason the OGPU and the Gulag were even in on this committee is for them to try and explain how everything went wrong when they kept telling everyone how a success the deportation actually was. The commission spent several weeks in the Nazino area, checking complaints and questioning officials, from Commander Chekhov to the heads of the Commandaturas. On the way to Nazino, the commission visited a few of the new settlement villages, which were in a horrible state of decay and disrepair, totally contradicting official reports. In another settlement district, the Biryosovka, out of a group of 682 deportees, half of them children, in the two weeks they were settled, over 60 had died. But none were as bad as the settlement sites near Nazino Island, which were the survivors of Death Island, as they called it. This is what the commission had to say in their final report. The huts are half buried, a roof made of branches through which the autumn rains pour, no windows, inside rows and rows of pallets with little dry grass to serve as a blanket, half-naked, emaciated, dirty, life-spreading individuals lie here. Outside the huts, the more vigorous ones warm themselves around wood fires when the local commander was asked, why do the deportees stay outside? They're all used to living outside around the wood fires. They've always done that. They do it here too. The commander responded, we also went to the huts into which had been crowded by people suffering from dysentery, tuberculosis, scurvy, syphilis, along with se severely emaciated individuals. When asked about the individuals lying on pallets covered with a blanket of grass that hadn't been changed in weeks, we were told that they had always been sick and emaciated and that in any case they could not be cared for because there was a lack of everything. We estimated that that they were at least 800 bedridden people. A few rare able-bodied individuals were constantly walking around building huts. At one settlement, <clears throat> at one settlement, the commission noticed a piece of land that had been cleared and sown, about two acres worth of land. That was everything that had been done for this grandiose plan. Two acres of land. During its inspection tour, the commission tore the local officials a new one, saying because of their prolonged isolation in a hostile environment, it caused them to have no class or compassion and called them political degenerates. While they were doing their tour, they also investigated the claims of many deportees that they had been unjustly deported in the three weeks that they were in the area. 174 out of 810 individuals 
They were freed of their status as labor colonists and sent back to Moscow or Leningrad due to them still having their papers on them. 231 were sent with an escort and another, 204, and another 240 others were referred to have their cases reevaluated, only leaving 165 of the 810 having been rightfully deported. Imagine fucking up so bad that out of 810 people, only 165 were actually meant to be deported. However, none who were wrongly deported were given a compensation or even allowed to go home. Now, the biggest thing the commission was to assess was to attempt to determine the number of survivors. So by following convoy records and other records collected, they determined that in mid-October of the 10,000 who were deported to the Alexandrov-Skole region, less than a quarter were still alive. 2,025. So in this district alone, almost two-thirds of the deportees, 6,324 had disappeared since the beginning of the deportation campaign starting in April of 1933. The commission then estimated the state of the 2,000 survivors as follows. 50% ill and bedridden, 35-45% weakened condition, 10-15% to 15%, or about 200 people capable of working. Back in Altino on October 18th, Kovalev telegraphed the head of the Gulag that in order to avoid any more decline of the deportees that are still left, there was no other choice but to re-examine the cases of the survivors. To let the least socially dangerous ones leave, banning them to go home or live in cities with special rules, and to send the most dangerous ones back to Tomsk, at least until spring, to evaluate all the decrepit settlement sites. So the commission submitted its report on October 31st, acknowledging the efforts made by Velichko, our reporter, However, the proposals made by Kovalev that I just read before were not included in the report because nobody wanted to take the responsibility for a new transfer of deportees back to Tomsk, which at this point was at full capacity, with 8,000 deportees having spent all winter there due to not being able to send out any deportees after the Nazina affair. Also, the season when the river was navigable was coming to an end and the company that lent out its boats were bringing them back with the last boat having just completed its last Nazino run. Now it was impossible to evacuate the survivors of Nazino that were left behind in the northern settlement sites. So these people were stuck for another winter to fend for themselves before any help would even begin to arrive. On November 1st, the highest regional political authorities met with Robert Eicher to discuss the commission report, which ended up on reprimanding about 10 high-ranking officials, Gorchkov included. Remember the two officials Chepkov left in his place when he went to Moscow? Well, they got punished, but it was just a slap on the wrist. It was the minor local officials which were the most severely punished. Chepkov and Frolov amongst them. They were expelled from the party, and sentenced each to three years in a labor camp for having sabotaged the implementation of the state's 1933 plan 
for colonizing the Nirim region. They were blamed and claimed that they sabotaged this plan, which is why it didn't work. Lastly, Western Siberia once again insisted with the party central committee to not send any further deportees, especially of this kind, to Western Siberia. And finally, the OGPU requested to Siberian officials to examine the remaining deportees left in the region to try and evacuate them to other sites. And just like that, the state's grandiose plan of colonizing and farming uncharted territory came to an end. When the grandiose plan ended up being nothing more than a half-assed idea that disregarded human life in order to try and build the perfect communist utopia. The plan for using special senators to develop the inhospitable regions of the USSR had come to a screeching halt when the Nazino affair began. Man, how pissed off is Sepkov and fucking Frolov, dude? They took all the fucking blame, man. Three years in labor camp? The fuck? It's a fucked up story, bro. How it's a fucked up story. Fucked up. Like, like when you first when you first told me about this topic and you first told me about this uh, thing, I thought Stalin was behind. Like, like he knew. Like he specifically knew. All this was happening. Yeah. Until we found out a little bit more and more and more that he had no fucking idea this was happening. Yeah, he had no idea. He had no fucking idea. I'm I'm pretty sure he act I mean in like in this story he kinda seemed like he was like an upstanding guy. Yeah. He's like, What the fuck? This is going on in my restaurant? Let's investigate. But I'm pretty sure he only investigated it because he didn't wanna he wanted to find out why he got so fucked up and made Russia look bad. Mm. And probably because he had so many people on his ass already. Because remember, a few years ago, the fucking world came and helped out Russia. Yeah, that's true. Yep, yep. The eyes were on him already. Yeah, so he's like, what the fuck? So, dude, this was fucked up. Everything about the story, everything about this whole affair is fucked up. From, why, from what the plan was, to how it was implemented, how nobody... Gave a fuck about anything but themselves and about how they were just okay with dropping off these thousands of people on this fucking island. Dude, I'm cold here in your room and it's AC. It's on. It's like, what, 65, 68, maybe 70? Imagine being starving, not having eaten for days, and being in below freezing, freezing temperatures. temperatures. Fuck. With no, while you're wearing nothing on the outside. While you're outside. Dude, the story is fucked. I'm glad it's over. I'm really glad it's over. Just because yeah. I needed to get all those numbers out of my head. But again, thank you guys for uh, 
uh, going along this ride with us. I know this episode is just a little late, but like I mentioned at the top of the episode, um, there were more important things going on in the world, and I didn't want any attention, even though, you know, I'm not saying we're going to take any attention away from it, but I wanted only the voices that needed to be heard to be heard. Plus, like I said, we had a few family deaths. We had deaths in the family and stuff, so we were dealing with all of that. But now we're back. Archie's coming back for our next episode. LA's. Who? LA's. Um, Who's coming back? <laughs> Some guy. Some guy. <laughs> um, LA, you know, the LA, Los Angeles has been slowly lifting the COVID restrictions we have. And that's the reason why you guys haven't been watching, why you guys haven't been hearing Archie, because he did not want to leave his house. That paranoid fuck. But now that LA said it's okay to move, he has no reason to be at home anymore. So we're, so we're going to drag him out of his garage to stop adding turbo to his fucking car and help us talk about shit that's weird and eerie. But I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I know this is this is more history heavy than anything. There was a lot of there's a lot of names and a lot of fucking numbers I threw at you guys. So I'm sorry for that, but I just thought that it's, it's a story that should be heard. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a story that should be heard. It's one of those stories that you know is just fucking crazy. That even in the documentary happened. at the end, um, some of the people that that were in the the uh, in the film. They had family members who were yeah. right, like the main guy, right? His grandfather was sent to the gulag, was sent to the Nasino. Um, never came back. Well the the library chick. Yeah, the library. Right? Her her aunt was sent over there and she never came back. And she was like, Yeah, this story needs to be heard. And it's true. And what that older what that older gentleman said, just because the dead are gone, we still have to remember them. Yeah. It's our duty to remember them by keeping these stories alive. Yep. So I mean it sucks. It's crazy. But, you know, it happened. Again, if you just want to learn more, please, 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 please pick up the book, Cannibal Island, Death in the Siberian Gulag. I'm going to have this on the, on the episode show notes by Nicholas Worth. It's a really good book. There's a few things that I left off, obviously, because there are a lot of there are a lot of things that, weren't, that are important to the whole affair, but I just weren't needed to keep things linear. So if you guys want to, if you're interested in more, just pick up the book and you know read those chapters that I didn't even touch or whatever. Um, interesting book, check that out. And if you want a short version of it, you can watch Cannibal Island on Prime Video uh, under the director of Cedric Condom. And if you guys want to keep in touch, follow with everything what we're doing. Again, you guys can follow us on Instagram at the Weird History If You Tell Spawns. Thank you guys very much. And if you have nothing else to add, we are the Weird History. Here he tells podcast.